I'm Jeff Cohen. Moise Navone is an engineer by profession. As one of the founding engineers at Mobileye, he helped design the very chip that powers autonomous vehicles. But he also lectures and writes extensively on Jewish law and thought, and he became known as the Rabbi of Mobileye. Today he's here to share his story. Moise, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you very much for having me. So as much as I want to talk about autonomous vehicles, we will get to that later. So give me a sense of where you were born and raised. Basically, my, my whole life starts in Los Angeles. My parents, they were basically immigrants from Istanbul, Turkey. And since I was the firstborn, my mom flew back to Istanbul to be with her parents to have me. So I was actually born in Turkey, lived there for two months, and then came to LA for the rest of my life until I made Aliyah. So how many languages were you speaking in your house growing up? My parents spoke Turkish and Ladino in order that we wouldn't understand. <laughs> and, you know, they wanted us to be American, so they spoke English to us. Although we, you know, growing up in L.A., so we took Spanish already, you know, in high school. And so then the, the Ladino and the Spanish pretty much works together. I mean, my dad actually was a travel agent spoke um, like five languages, wow. but we never got there. I'm, I basically speak uh, English, Ladino, and Hebrew. So tell me how your family was from a religious perspective growing up. We basically grew up completely secular. My grandparents were religious. Um, they grew up in a, in, you know, a Jewish ghetto in Turkey until there were like pogroms, and they, they came to the big city in Istanbul. And they couldn't bring with them their two sets of dishes and all this stuff. So lots of things got dropped along the way. And my grandfather was like Shomer Shabbat, but the rest of the family went to the beach. And then <laughs> so the way we were raised was, you know, we went to Sunday school, which was, you know, two days a week kind of thing. Um, had my bar mitzvah and that was my graduation from Judaism. Don't have to bother with this pain in the neck anymore. And, uh, you know, went and had my regular secular American life. So that's pretty similar to my background. I had Sunday school, but we were also doing a few of the holidays. We were dipping apples in honey and Rosh Hashanah, eating matzah on Passover, but nothing nothing major that was anywhere even close to observant. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, we, we actually, of course, we did holidays, you know, holiday meals. Um, we actually did Kiddush on Shabbat. My dad would say, Eshet uh, Chayel in English, you know, a woman of valor who can mm -hmm. find for her prices far above rubies. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but then we went to the movies. <laughs> so did you have any perspective on Jewish observance as a kid, what you thought that lifestyle was like, or was it anywhere on the radar as you were growing up? Zero. At some point, when I was young, I, we saw some religious people in the Fairfax neighborhood of, of Los Angeles, you know, and I was like, who are those people? What do they do? And wh why are they dressed like that? And the only inkling I got from home was one time I remember I was a kid and I brought my mom, my jeans had torn. And I said, you know, I, can you sew these for me? And she said, well, no, not today. And I'm mean, like, well, well, why? She said, it's Saturday. <laughs> and I said, so, so what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> And she goes, no, my mom doesn't sew on Saturday, so neither do I. And also, I mean, look, we never ate pork or, sh or shellfish. Uh, yeah, we did eat milk and meat, but no, no pork or shellfish entered the house. And, um, but, you know, cheeseburgers and whatever. So then with religion not in the forefront at that stage of your life, you're getting into high school and thinking about college. Do you have a, a career in mind or do you know what you want to be in your teens or not yet? 
at the end of high school when I needed to try to figure out a major, you know, I knew that I liked uh, math and science. I wanted to do something with math and science, but I had no idea what. And so um, for a series of weeks, my mom invited every professional that we could think of that, that I said, you know, oh, you know, I want to be a doctor. Maybe I'll be a doctor. So she invited this surgeon we know. And we had dinner, and he said, you don't want to be a doctor. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll take your advice. And then I said, oh, you know, maybe I'll be an architect. So she invited an architect, and he said, you don't want to be an architect. And then she invited the engineer, and the engineer said, you want to be an engineer. It's the greatest thing, and I'll give you a job when you graduate. Wow. So I said, I'm an engineer. So you were being offered a job four years ahead of time, basically. That is correct. And not only that, not only did he come through, you know, in, in my second year in college, he already brought me in as a student intern at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Wow, so with NASA. Yeah. So what was he telling you at that dinner that was turning you on to engineering? Aside from saying this would be great and I'll, I'll give you a job, what was it about the profession you think that was grabbing you? It was a, a, an opportunity to apply math and science, and that's really what I wanted to do, to find a way that, to apply what I like, what I'm good at, and here's somebody who's enthusiastic about it. Okay, so where did you end up going to college, and, and what was the specific major? So I went to UCLA, and I majored in what was called then computer engineering, which was a combination of the computer science department and the electrical engineering department. It was kind of like a, a double major, but combined into one. And the whole time that you're in school, you're thinking, I'm going to get this degree and I have this job waiting for me and my, and my life is mapped out. Is that how clear it was for you? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So that sounds about <laughs> right for an engineer having a plan. But what about the religious side? You know, even though I grew up with, with little inkling as to what, you know, a religious Jew is, I, we were raised like, you know, proud Jews. We were very, you know, we were very Jewish in the sense that we did the traditions and connected to the, you know, my grandparents and this whole idea. I remember that my mom, when I was like between three or four years old, she had become friends with this reform rabbi and they didn't have many friends because they were immigrants. And so this guy sort of befriended her or the family and he invited us to shul. And I remember going to this reform temple and the rabbi that we know got up on the stage and I was like, completely impressed with this. And I, I stood up on my chair and I told my mom, I said, I'm going to be a rabbi. <laughs> it took another like uh, close to 40 years to do. But yeah, um, that was sort of the beginning. Now, now but it, more of a, what they say, talkless, more the, 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 the real story is, is that when I started working at JPL for this friend of the family, you know, he was a religious Jew. Um, when I started working there, basically, we spent half the day talking engineering, we spent the other half today talking Judaism. Wow. And um, yeah, so that was my entrance. Uh, you know, he was my mentor in, in every aspect. So I was all ears, whether it was engineering or religion. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, I was hearing answers to questions that I always had. I mean, ever since I was a little kid, I remember being seven or eight years old and finding out that people die mm -hmm. and saying, okay, so, so why are we here? I mean, what's the point? I mean, you know, I thought we were just here and everybody just lives forever. And so there's no question, but now there's a question. What, I mean, if we're, if we're checking out, so what do we come here for? And obviously I didn't get an answer until I started. Uh, I mean, it's not so obvious. I could have 
learned other religions or other philosophies. It turns out I never met an existentialist philosopher, so I never got any answers, although they don't really have exactly the answer either. They just talk about it a lot in a very uh, sophisticated way. But uh, so anyway, so so this guy, uh, Reyes Ganazi, who's a friend of the family, was giving me answers to that question from within our tradition. And so a lot of things began to click for me, and slowly, slowly, I, I got into the being an observant Jew. You stood on a chair and said you wanted to be a rabbi, but that was not one of the people who came over for dinner when you were considering careers. No, no, I, that was long <laughs> gone. I, there, <laughs> that was, I only, you know, brought that back into memory when I started learning to be a rabbi. Got I it. realized that God has a plan. So as you're learning all these things, are you thinking, wow, this is so great, I never had this education when I was growing up? Or are you thinking, oh, there may be something here to how I actually want to live my life? I think I looked at learning Judaism like I looked at learning engineering. I'm just learning about the world. I'm learning everything. And this guy is a channel for me to learn all this stuff. And I learned it on the same plane. For me, engineering, philosophy, um, math, science, humanities, it's all the same. I want to learn about the world. So where is that moment then where it goes from I'm learning to maybe I'm going to do some of the things that I'm learning about? It was right away. You know, that's the funny thing about engineers, you see, is that engineers apply science, right? <laughs> We're not just interested in talking about it, okay? We want to figure out how can we use this. So there was the same thing with the, the philosophy had to be implemented. If, if we just talked about, you know, we believe in a soul or we believe in, you know, in eternity, we believe in all that, that's, that's lovely. But, but what do we do? you know, and what do you do with that information? And so I remember that very early on, I learned that you don't eat milk and meat together, which was a, which was a revelation. We didn't know that, you know, I know you don't eat pork. I know you don't eat shellfish, but you're, no cheeseburgers. <laughs> and so that was like the first thing that I tried to do was not eat milk and meat together. Mm -hmm. And I basically did that on my own. I just, he told me that, you know, we don't eat cheeseburgers. So I didn't eat cheeseburgers. And then he told me later that you have to wait six hours. That was a, a challenge. That took at least a half a year to a year of, of throwing away ice creams after you, you know, realizing, oh, I <laughs> shouldn't have bought that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's this slow journey. You're in your 20s now. So does your wife come into the picture at this point, or where does she come along in this journey? She came along just after the beginning, like I had started going out with her and, you know, she basically comes from the same background as me, you know, traditional Jews, proud Jews, but completely, you know, not observant, you know, doing holidays here and there and in their own way. And slowly, slowly, you know, I would explain to her things that I was learning and um, she would balk at a lot of this stuff and I would just say, okay, whatever, well, you know, moving on from that, like... And, um, but slowly, slowly, she came along with me. Well, wow. what are those conversations like with your two families who are both secular? I mean, maybe they're happy you're starting to explore Judaism, but now it's going a little bit further that you're getting closer and closer to uh, observant life. Are they supportive? Are they challenging you? How are they feeling about it? Basically, the, our backgrounds are similar, hers and mine, but the family's backgrounds are very different. So uh, my family, like I said, comes from 
basically traditional observant home. And my mom always felt guilty that she always told me that her father can't eat in her house. My father can't eat. I said, he's not coming. What are you worried about? You know, <laughs> he's an old man. He's not going to get on an airplane. But she was always worried that he couldn't eat in our house. And so when I said I'm going to be, you know, orthodox i'm going to be kosher and all that stuff so she was happy you know she said fine um it was sort of like a return home um but for my wife it was a lot different you know she came from her grandparents were already what would be called uh, reform conservative from hungary right they were part of that initial break right and her parents were, were completely staunch reformers like they believed in the break and so now this is not a return to anything that they're interested in. So it was much more difficult. I can imagine so. And I had the same kind of issues with my own family who was just questioning why I was going so far along on religion. I mean, I was, I was raised Jewish and they're happy I married somebody Jewish, but they really wondered why did I need to dig this deep? So are you having those kind of conversations with your wife? Like, okay, we're learning these things. All right, we're not going to eat milk and meat together. But when does the conversation evolve to, you know what, we're going to raise an observant family, live in a Jewish community? Like, when did it evolve to that point? You know, we sort of grew into all of that. We went out, you know, through college, and we didn't get married until like a year, year and a half after that. This was an evolution where, you know, we became observant together. For me to keep Shabbat, what I decided was it's, it's way too difficult all at once. And so basically, I decided I'm not going to use electricity. So uh, my wife comes over, my girlfriend at the time, and so, so it's Friday night, so what are we going to do? I said, I don't know, let's play cards or something, you know. No, what, you don't want to watch a movie? Well, no, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it, it, took a, it didn't take her long to figure out, I said, what, we're not, we're not watching TV on Shabbat? I mean, like, you know, we're not doing this. And so slowly, slowly it evolved. And so by the time that we were ready to get married, it was obvious that we were Shomer Shabbat. And did you then move within Los Angeles to be near a shul and have a rabbi guiding you at that point as you were starting a family? I didn't really have a rabbi guiding me. I had, there were different rabbis that I learned with. There were different people I asked questions to. But we did move to like the Orthodox community, which is also where this mentor figure of mine also lived. We did move to the religious neighborhood and, and uh, became part of a shul there. Although also where I grew up in Westwood, there is a, a modern Orthodox community that my mom associated with. And we used to switch off Shabbats and go there. And I was probably even more connected to that shul than the ones in my neighborhood. And so I imagine... Uh Thinking back now to the career side of things, you got to work on some pretty interesting projects while you were in Los Angeles. Can you tell me about one or two uh, cool engineering things you got involved in? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting projects. I, I worked on one of the first uh, laser printers. Like HP had come out with a brand new laser printer, and that was the first thing. And I worked for a company that was making was trying to make it uh, basically much cheaper. So there was I learned a lot of what's really called image processing, even though you don't realize it, but the, it's the same kinds of things that are being done in a, in a laser printer. And then I worked for another company that we had a defense contract where we did um, the Star Wars project for Ronald Reagan, basically, you know, the defense system, strategic defense initiative against missiles from Russia, which may come in handy, you know, you never know. <laughs> Timing is everything. Exactly. <laughs> 
Wow, so you definitely worked on some some cool things, but I understand you're talking to me from Israel. So I imagine there must come a point where your story switches from Los Angeles to Israel. So how does that piece of your story begin? The story really begins from the idea that as we're learning about Judaism, we're realizing that, you know, this is the land of the Jews, you know, to, you, you need to be in Israel. And, and I'm, I don't mean to lay a guilt trip on all of the people in America. My whole family's in America. But on the other hand, I mean, um, there's a rabbi in, in the old city of Israel named David Aaron. And he once said, you know, if you ask a junior high school student, even an elementary school student, read this book called the Torah and, you know, write me a one page uh, essay, a summary, you know, and, and with, a, with a theme. What was the theme of the book? You know, he'll say, basically, it's about of a people coming home to live in their country. It's about a people that becomes formed and goes to live in their country. And so that's really what, what we feel is this, this book is about. That's what we feel that our life is about. That's what we feel the purpose of the Jewish people is really to be, as we say, a light onto the nations. That means you have to be a nation. And you have to go through the struggles of nations. And you have to try to be that representative of a good and moral people. So anyway, so that was really what drove us to try to come here. It wasn't so simple. You know, you can't just pack up and leave. Um, my wife actually just suggested that we do that. And I, and I said, you know, I can't go where I don't have a job. And so that was a whole process of trying to find a, a way that I'll find a job. At the time, I was working for a company that had a bunch of engineers on, uh, Israeli engineers that were on sabbatical leave. I became friends with them, and one day one of them put this fax on my desk from IBM Israel. IBM Israel was coming to L.A. to interview for six or seven positions, and I asked him, I said, why did you give me this? And he said, well, Stom, thought you'd be interested. You know, I said, yeah, of course I'm interested, <laughs> I, you know, and I immediately faxed my resume to IBM Israel, got an interview set up. And um, I mean, to make a long story short, basically, that's how I came to Israel. Uh, IBM um, hired me to work in their chip design facility in Haifa. And uh, that was the beginning of, of this process of, of making Aliyah. But somehow you end up going from IBM to Mobileye. So I imagine something happens along the way that makes that transition happen. That's a, that's a big <laughs> jump because we're talking about IBM. I started in 1992 and Mobileye started in 2001. Basically, what happened was that IBM is a, a really amazing place to learn engineering, to do engineering. But Haifa in 1992 is not a great place for an English-speaking religious person. We were basically living in, you know, isolation, practically. We didn't really have a social structure, and, and it was hard. And so after about a year or so there, I, um, a friend of mine had a job for me in, in Jerusalem. I went to go work for a startup in Jerusalem. And so that was a much better fit for us in terms of being around the kinds of people that we know and can speak with and connect with socially. But unfortunately, the startup wasn't such a great idea and it went under like in three months. And so I was on the street. But I started looking for a job, and I went to work for another company called OptiBase. We were making uh, video-on-demand systems. We made the first video-on-demand systems for airplanes. If you watch TV when you fly, so you're basically watching on the system I designed. It was the first system in, like, 1994. Um, and then I worked for a few other companies here and there until uh, in the year 2000, I was working for a startup uh, making fiber to the home. And uh, when I went to go work for them, so, you know, they said, we have funding for one year. 
But don't worry, next year we're going to go to the NASDAQ, everybody's going public, we'll get funding, and we'll continue working. But in the year 2000, which was the dot-com boom, quickly became, in 2001, the dot-com bust. And uh, there was no NASDAQ next year, there was no funding, and, and lots of companies in Israel went under, including the one I was working for. And so I was on the street again, but this time it was basically the bottom of my career because now not only do I have no job, there are no jobs to go to. All the engineers that are like me are on the street. It was a very, very difficult time. Um, but I kept looking, and uh, at one point a friend of mine said, you know, you used to work with a guy at uh, NDS. Uh, he's working for a startup in, in a house in Ramot a small neighborhood outside of Jerusalem or on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Anyway, I said, great, great, a startup. I'm looking for a startup, but what do they do? Internet? You know, I, I'm done with the internet. And he said, no, no, something in automotive. I said, oh, cars. People need cars. I'll go work for them. So that was Mobileye. I worked for them basically for... 16, 17 years. I'm still on the roster because I, I basically tell the story and I, I host all kinds of groups that come to learn about the startup nation. But, um, you know, since the, the exit, I basically moved on to doing all kinds of other interesting things that I've been interested in doing. So I want to slow down for one moment. You're in a position where you're, you're just trying to find work and then you're hearing what this company is trying to do. Did you think in your wildest dreams that you were joining something that had the potential to be this? Or, or was your mind at that point like, I need to find a job and this is an opportunity and I'm going to grab this? Um, well, actually, it's, that's a good question. The fact is that I had other offers from other places. I felt that Mobileye definitely had something special. And, you know, I, I waited for something that would be good. I didn't just take the first offer or even the second offer. I didn't in my wildest dreams imagine it would be on the scale that Mobileye was. Uh, Mobileye wasn't put together to make autonomous vehicles. In 2001, nobody in the world was really talking about making autonomous vehicles. We, I believed that what we were doing was, was image processing, automating, driving. Uh, and so I felt that there was a market for it. I felt that it was, an, it was a very, and from an engineering standpoint, it was a very challenging product and, and process and, and environment. And so that was what I was looking for. So there's probably no better person in the world to ask this next question. But what is the world of autonomous vehicles going to look like in three years, five years, 10 years? Where is it going to get to? That's a good question. I'm probably not the best person to ask, but, but anyway, I mean, I am kind <laughs> of connected to the field. You know, Mobileye has a lot of uh, pilot programs, uh, robo-taxi programs all over the world in various uh, big cities, Tel Aviv, New York, Paris, um, in Korea. And so autonomous vehicles on, in, on the robo-taxi level are already going to start rolling, you know, this coming summer. In terms of a commercial vehicle being available, Mobileye is also pushing the envelope on that, and we should be able to see something within the next couple of years. In terms of, you know, when will we switch? And nobody's going to drive anymore. So that's a big question that there's all kinds of people, you know, nobody's a prophet. But I've read an article in, in Wired some time ago. Also, the VP of General Motors put a number in. Different futurists are giving their guesses. And they're looking at 2035. 
where basically it's all autonomous, 2040, something like that. But there's no question in my mind that people will not drive cars anymore. You know, when I tell people that, so a lot of times they say, no, but I, I want to drive. I like to drive. <laughs> and I tell them that's lovely, but, you know, we can't have people killing people because you enjoy yourself. 1.25 million people every year die in car accidents around the world. That's an insane number. I mean, just in America alone, it's, it's like 35,000 approximately the numbers are way too big, and, and autonomous vehicles can bring that, you know, orders of magnitude down. Well, I think the challenge for people who are trying to wrap their head around it is they understand that drunk driving goes away, speeding goes away, driver error or playing on your phone goes away. But they think, if I'm the one person who's sitting in the car when there's a glitch and the car just takes me into a wall, that's the one thing that wouldn't have happened. And that's why I wish I was like still driving. It's hard for people to get their head around the idea that thousands of accidents will be prevented, but that will happen here and there. It's just the numbers will be much lower. Correct. Right, right. It's much more difficult to accept a computer killing somebody as opposed to people killing people. You know, the numbers speak for themselves. There is a very nice Rand Corporation study that was done, and you see that the sooner we put autonomous vehicles on the road, the sooner we start saving lives. You know, even if the technology isn't so good, it's way better than human error. But nevertheless, we're not going to do that because people won't accept computers killing people. And so it's going to have to be really good. Right. So my eight-year-old always asks me, is he going to need to get a driver's license? So it sounds like he probably will, and then he won't need it. (laughs) Exactly. Look, my kids who are now already in their 20s, um, they they were asking me that when they were eight years old, and I was telling them, yeah, you probably won't need it. (laughs) (laughs) So I I mentioned in the intro that you became known as the rabbi of Mobileye. So that tells me that somewhere along the way, what you're doing career-wise and what you're doing from a Jewish perspective are starting to merge in some way in your life. So how did that title come about? You know, I always uh, spent all of my free time learning Torah. And at some point, uh, my wife found this program at Merkazarov, which allowed working stiffs like me to go two days a week and uh, learn towards smicha. And so it took me about six years. I never missed a class two days a week. Um, You know, if I wasn't able to get there, I listened to the recording. And um, I was able to get smichat Rabbanut from Rav Zalman Nechemir Goldberg and take the test from the the Rabbanut. And... um, that was sort of in the background, sort of made it official. But the, the Rabbi of Mobileye title already came in from the beginning. You know, when we started, the company was maybe 10, 15 people. And so every time that there was a little gathering in the, and the CEO gave his sort of uh, speech about, uh, you know, where we are in the company, the status update. So I would also get up there and say something about the holiday that's coming up. And so, uh, you know, it was he and I were the ones who were like giving these little company talks. And, you know, people used to ask me questions and halachic questions. And then at some point, um, I realized that there's secular people who are against religion. Fine. I don't really have anything to do with them. And then there's secular people who have no idea about anything. And so um, I started a once a week lunch class with them. And that basically grew and grew. And for... Really, 16 years, every week, I gave a a class that was given, there were basically secular people, and then slowly religious people came, and it became this sort of combined group, 
And I think that's more or less how I got the title, basically teaching once a week, answering questions, giving these little, what they call haramat kosit, the toast to the new year or the new holiday. And so I imagine pre-IPO, there's a percentage of your time that's focused on career and a percentage on tour learning. But post-IPO, you get a degree of financial independence. So does the, is there a major shift at that point in how you're spending your time? Yeah. So that was always my goal. I remember when I signed the contract to start at Mobileye and, and uh, the CEO, he said, as I was signing, he said, this is going to change your life. And, you know, and I said to myself, that's what I'm here for, you know. And so when I shifted gears at Mobileye, I wrote him a little thank you card. And I said, you know, now I'm going on to do, you know, what I want to do. You were right. This changed my life. And he said, I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> but yeah, so basically I went and I started uh, learning um, Jewish philosophy. I got a master's degree in Jewish philosophy at Bar Ilan University. And then um, I'm now working on my PhD in Jewish philosophy and combining basically both worlds. The, the title of my thesis is The Moral Status of Artificial Intelligence. And it's basically an ethical look at now with all of this new technology, you know, how do we employ it? How do we deploy it? How do we interact with it in an ethical basis? It's become such a huge, huge topic. I mean, when I started this, I didn't realize how, how huge it is. But now I've already been approached by two universities that I'm giving um, a course on ethics and AI at Ben-Gurion University. It's actually a required course. You would think it would be an elective. It's not. It's so they, Their universities are beginning to realize how critical it is for engineers to also have an understanding of ethics if they would have told me that when i learned engineering i would have said what are you why are you having me do this you know in what way is this connected but but it's very much connected and i'm right now just building out every day i build out another class and there's just so many subjects that i'm having to cut out things you know we had a rabbi come into our shul and give a whole shear on all of this technology and how it relates to Shabbos. And he was getting into your smart home and your smart fridge and Alexa and all these different things and what you can and can't do. And he was saying it's a whole world of halakhic issues that nobody had to think about, say, 15 years ago. And now it's a big deal on Shabbos for observant people. Correct. Right, right. I mean, Shabbat obviously is very specific to religious Jews. And there's huge questions, you know, the question about using an autonomous vehicle. But there's also ethical questions on a daily basis. The autonomous vehicle, uh, you know, who the, the, the famous trolley problem, you know, whose life are you going to save? The driver, the people outside and so forth. And, and there's many, many other questions. There's questions. I mean, I just did a built a shiur about virtual reality, uh, a shiur on surveillance and privacy and manipulation. And, you know, you can just imagine the manipulations online, offline, in virtual reality. There's just so many issues where engineers also have some input in that and that, that, that engineers really need to be thinking about those things as they develop. I'm not saying that that's the perfect solution, that you know there are corners of engineering like the, 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 the issues of deep fakes, which has basically come out of really trying to improve image processing and artificial intelligence and really had nothing to do with with deep fakes but all of a sudden that technology allowed for this really immoral use although it does have very good applications as well and so the whole question is you know how can we rein in the technology make the technology ethical whether it's by regulation or whether it's by by technical development so there's a lot of issues 
And I mean, it's become just a huge topic. We're so happy to be, you know, at the center of. You sure are at the center. And I, I think about all the parents out there who'd be listening to this and wondering, what were the ground rules for your kids growing up in terms of being allowed to use technology versus get off your phone, get off the computer, get off of all these things and, and live in the world? But you're at the same time in your career, you're you're creating a lot of these things that are helping. So you have to balance those two ideas. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, I grew up, you know, in the 70s when, you know, you went, uh, kids went outside and played and fell and got dirty, actually. And uh, now everybody's sitting at home and I keep trying to kick them out and get them outside. And uh, although, of course, like you said, I'm in technology and I love technology and I believe that technology really is part of fixing the world and making the world a better place to live. And it's raised the standard of living. It's, it's enabled people to do so much um, and live so much better. And that's really what, you know, tikkun olam is about, fixing the world. On the other hand, like I said, there's there's ethical questions. I mean, what you're mentioning about the, the abuses of time and free time and so forth is really a terrible thing. Right. It could be a whole other podcast getting into yeah. that. So let, let's go back to your story. So I understand you also wrote a book along the way called Threads of Reason. So how did that come about? I became very involved in the Petil Techelet, this blue string that we put on our seat and our talitot. You know, my, my grandfather, I never met him. He passed away before I was able to meet him. And they only told me one story of him. And they said, you know, he had one mitzvah. He tied the seat for the shul. So all the talitot for the shul, that was his mitzvah. And for some reason, I was very connected to tzitzit. One of the first things, besides trying to not eat milk and meat together, the first positive mitzvah I did was I put on arba kanfot, a talit katan. And I mean, I wasn't even wearing a kippah. I had the strings inside, so no, no, but I, I just wanted to do this thing. You know, in the Shema, it says every, you know, twice a day you say that you put this blue string. Where's the blue string on the tzitzit? <laughs> so I was always intrigued and tried to find where is this blue string and why don't we have it. And, and when I finally ran into this group called Amutat Ptil Techelet, the Ptil Techelet organization, that they said they had it. So I went to them. I went to their lecture. I, I bought books and so forth. There wasn't really a lot at the time. And I researched it and, and um, I became convinced that, that we actually have the biblical source for the blue dye that was used, like I said, in biblical times. So I became very enthusiastic about it and I started telling people about it. And I was working for a company where there's a lot of religious people. And this one guy said, listen, calm down. You're very enthusiastic. I see you. You went to a lecture. Why don't you bring the guy who you gave the lecture? Bring him to our, our company and we'll have a lunch with him and we'll all hear from him. So I immediately called up and they said, oh, no, he's not available. So I took all of my information. I made this 50 slide PowerPoint presentation and I gave it to my guys at work. And then when I was done, I, so I called up the the organization. I said, listen, I have this slideshow if you want to use it. And they said, no, no, but um, if you could give the lecture for us over here and over there. And <laughs> so all of a sudden I became involved with the group. And over the years, I did a lot more investigation and wrote a lot of papers and, and a lot of lectures with a lot of questions and answers. And that's how the book basically evolved from that. But that's like, a, yeah, one of, one of my sort of side um, uh, pet projects is, is promoting Tehillet. It's, a, you know, if you think about it, there's only two commandments from the Torah, mitzvot deoraita, that were completely lost to the Jewish people and returned to us in our generation. One is, of course, the ability to live in the land of Israel. Yeshuva Aretz is really a mitzvah deoraita. And uh, the other is to be able to put this blue string 
on our talitot. It says it straight in the Torah. It's a commandment from the Torah. I'm starting to see why you got so interested in this topic. It, may, it makes sense to me. <laughs> I'm also hearing loud and clear that you are someone who sets goals and goes after them. So I, I'm dying to know what's next for you in the next two to three years. What are you focused on from a Torah perspective? So um, I, like I said, I'm really focused on this whole integration of technology and ethics. I mean, I see the whole ethical world. as My, my study of ethics is a study of Torah. All of these classes I learn what the secular world has to say. I learn what the secular world is asking. The questions that they're asking are very, very important questions. They're giving a lot of very good and deep answers, but they're not grounded in anything more than intuition. So, you know, that's one of the beauties of Jewish thought and Jewish ethics is that it's grounded in 2,000 years of discussions starting with, uh, you know, what we believe is divine revelation going through all of the discussions of the oral Torah. And so I'm not saying that the, the, the five books of Moses or the, or the Tanakh or even all of the Talmud has exact answers, but it does have a framework. It does give us an approach to be able to answer these questions and ground them in something more than, than just what we think is the right thing. I imagine we have some listeners who are in college or just starting out in their career, and they're at that point where they're thinking, should I play it safe and go to a traditional company and just work my way up? Or should I go high risk reward and go to a startup? And you're someone who had that very choice being at IBM, going to startups. So what kind of advice do you give to people who are at that beginning stage of their career? So I, I have to admit that that question has been asked to me before. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, I would imagine so. And my answer is that really, if you can find a startup that you believe has potential you can't lose, even if it folds, even if you were wrong and, you know, it didn't become a mobile eye or it didn't even become a tenth of that or whatever. You won't go wrong. And the reason that you won't go wrong is because you're an engineer. You're not in marketing. You're not in sales. You're not in business. You don't need to. The, the company didn't go down because of you. So what you get to put on your resume is that you were involved in the development of some product. Okay, And because you're in a startup, everybody has to work super hard. If you go to a big company, you'll help somebody do something, you know, you'll draw a few lines, you'll write a few pieces of code to test something in some way, like nothing that you can really write on your resume unless you've been there for years. But, but with a startup, you can really get it going. You know, I, I, you have to weigh each case. I mean, it could be that they ask you to work for NASA and they gave you some really good position, et cetera. So I'm not saying that there, it's not a one pat answer. But, you know, right. all things considered, uh, if you can find a startup where you believe in the idea and they're giving you a position that's not a QA position, you're doing engineering, you know, you, they really need you to fulfill some piece of the puzzle. That's a great opportunity. All right, so let's close with our lightning round. I'm going to ask you five super fast questions. Are you ready? I am. <laughs> okay, so number one, outside of the technology that you've helped create, tell me about another technological innovation that you're truly impressed with. I mean, look, the whole artificial intelligence world from machine learning to natural language processing, all of this is changing our world and has the potential to really be beneficial in, in ways that we can't even imagine. And so someone else who's listening to this podcast and saying, you know what, I'm in the United States, but I too want to get to Israel and I want to break into the tech industry. What's your advice for someone who wants to go on that same journey? Try to get your resume out there. Try to make a pilot trip here. Try to connect to people. The best way to get in is to connect to people. 
you know, join groups. There's, there's all kinds of websites also that are trying to help, you know, Nefesh Benefesh. And, and there's a website called CGI, Computer Jobs in Israel. There's, there's different websites and different places where you can try to connect. If, I'm happy to send. I, have, I actually, so many people ask me that question that I have a giant Word file with links to all of these things that you can get to. <laughs> so. Very nice. And what would you say to someone who thinks, wow, all these technological innovations are great. All these things my iPhone can do are great. But at the same time, the kids who are growing up are missing like basic social skills because of all the reliance on phones. What, what's your perspective on that? I, well, I think I kind of touched on that before that I'm, I'm really upset with this utter dependence on, on technology for, that's replacing social skills, right? I love technology. I believe that it's helping us, society, in little ways and big ways. But I think that, it's the, that the addiction to social media, you know, for kids especially, is just terrible, People should be getting outside and running around and skinning their knees and, and actually talking to people. I, I know COVID has made it even worse, but yeah, we need to have social interaction where you can actually see the people in the flesh. And final question, at the very beginning, you mentioned having family roots in Turkey. So what's a dish that goes back to your Turkish roots that your family prepares on Shabbos? That's a question for my wife. Um, <laughs> you want to bring her in for the last yeah. question? Yeah, Dina. Yeah. Yeah, come. They want to ask you a question. Okay, but what's the question? The question is, what is a Turkish dish for Shabbat? What is a Turkish dish for Shabbat? Well, you know, I'm not Turkish. I'm Hungarian, but my mother-in-law taught me how to cook. There's a, quite a few things, right? Yeah, what so do you like? What is th- that? The, the meatballs with the... Akshali kafte. Yeah, akshali kafte. So my kids like these little meatballs that are in a tomato sauce with lemon that, that, that we start the meal with. So that's one thing. But there's also, you know, stuffed grape leaves, everything stuffed. Stuffed eggplant, stuffed, I don't know what, peppers and tomatoes they like. I learned to cook like Turkish things because they like their grandma's cooking. And unfortunately, their grandma's not here. So... <laughs> Wow, this is the first time we ever had uh, a spouse come in to lend an assist in the lightning round, so thank you for that. (laughs) And you are officially out of the lightning round, so Moise, I want to say thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit TachlisMedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.